All right, as you make your way to 1 Kings chapter 14, I want to say this about the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is the most powerful book on the planet. I wonder if you believe that. The author of that verse that I just read, which is in Hebrews 4, verse 12, the author of Hebrews certainly believes that, that the Bible is the most powerful book on the planet. He believes that God's Word is clearly in a category all by itself. No other book is living, no other book is as active as God's Word. What does he mean by some of those other phrases, the swords and the piercing and some of that stuff? Well, he just wants us to know that no other book like God's Word can tear you apart. No other book can expose you or rip you to pieces like God's Word can, and that's a good thing. Because no other book can put you back together quite like God's Word. It is the most powerful book on the planet. That's true because as we interact with the Word of God, we're actually dealing with the God whose Word it is. These are words from God. They're the most powerful words on the planet because they come from the most powerful one. They come from the one and only true God. God's word always has truths to teach. You'll never discover all the treasures that are found in the scriptures. There are always fresh truths. New insights are always ready to be discovered. God's word will also never be outdated. It'll never be outdated. The truths of the Bible will never be obsolete. These truths are Timeless. They were just as relevant for the first generation or the first reader who had the opportunity to read them, just as relevant for them as they will be for the last generation who will have the opportunity to read God's Word. God's Word is always fresh, it's always relevant, and it's incredibly powerful. I'm sure. Maybe not all of you, but most of you have read quite a few books. I think you would agree that there's just no other book like the Bible that has insight into our lives, insight into our hearts, like this book, like the Word of God. No other book seems to know us almost better than we know ourselves. No other book is as precise. No other book can convict us of our sin like the Bible can, like the Word of God can do. At the same time, no other book offers us hope like this one. No other books that we know of, no other book helps us to see the error of our sin and the blessing of living life the way God desires us to live. No other book can bring life. No other book can fill you with joy. No other book can remove the weight of your sin. That's why it's the most powerful book on the planet. Let me say it this way. No matter where you live, 
or when you live, no matter who you are, no other book can do what this book can do. No other book like God's word can give happiness. No other book can bring comfort. No other book can fill you with peace. There is no other book as powerful as the living and active word of God. And that's our big idea this morning. God's word is the most powerful book on the planet. As we come back to 1 Kings, you already know we're going to be in chapter 14. That's going to be our text this morning. We'll only look at the first 20 verses, but this is a chapter that is pretty similar to the ones that have come before. And it too, just to kind of remind you, this chapter seems to focus on and center on the word of God. But this is such a timely reminder. This chapter, these verses for us are a needed illustration. We need this reminder of the power of God's word. It is truly not like any other book, not like any other word. Of course, I have no ability. I have no special power to help me determine your thoughts of God's word. I have no idea how you view your Bible. Maybe you think the Bible is... I don't know, that it's just a book. Maybe you think, you know, like, we get it already. Like, why do we have to talk about the Bible, like, every Sunday? Maybe you think it's old and and dusty. Maybe you think we'd be, I don't know, better helped by something a little more current or, or, you know, modern. Maybe you think it's just a book full of stories. And yeah, some of them are cool. Some of them are interesting, you know, kind of amusing, but it's kind of about all like just a book with, you know, no, no power to actually help my life. Maybe that's how you think of God's word. Maybe you think that the word of God can be of, of some help to you when you need it, that you can use God's word to your advantage. But there are some in the room this morning who treat God's word like that, that I'm glad it's there. It can help me when I'm really in trouble and really get desperate enough. I can turn to God and his word for help like a lifeguard, like a last resort. I haven't tried God. Maybe, maybe God can help. Maybe God can fix it. If that's your view, you wouldn't be the only one who view God's word that way. Jeroboam, who we'll look at this morning, he had a very similar view of the word of God, of God's word. The last time in 1 Kings, Jeroboam, just to get you back into what we're talking about, he's up to no good. He had no regard for the word of God. He was ignoring it. Uh, he had become the king. God, through a prophet, sent that prophet to Jeroboam and told him, you're going to be the next king. This kingdom's going to be removed from the line of David, and, and you're up. You're it. Since then, he had become king, and he was chosen by God through a prophet named Ahijah. 
That's, I didn't sneeze. That's his name. Ahijah, that's, that's a great name for him. Jeroboam, through that man, he learned what his role would be, but he didn't listen very well. He was told to live similarly to the way that King David lived, lived uh, to, to live in a way that obeyed and honored God's commands and God's instruction. And instead, Jeroboam decided to make up his own religion. And last time we saw that God had to send a prophet to stop him. And even though the, the prophet's prophecy came true and Jeroboam temporarily lost control or use of his arm, it wasn't enough for him to learn his lesson. God's word was rejected still by Jeroboam in chapter 13. He ignored it. He didn't get it. He didn't really care. He didn't realize how powerful the word of God truly is. And so he needs a reminder of, of that reality of how powerful God's word is And I think we do too. We don't value the scriptures like we should. We don't appreciate the Bible for what it is. It's the most powerful book on the planet. God's word, we'll see this morning, will expose your intentions. It'll attack your sin. It'll reveal the consequences of sin. And it'll emphasize for you what's truly important. Let's see these truths on display here. We'll look at the first six verses. Let me read it. Please follow along with me as I read. 1 Kings 14, verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself so that they will not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who spoke concerning me that I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves with you, some cakes, a jar of honey. Go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. Jeroboam's wife did so, and she arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he's sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. God's Word is the most powerful book on the planet. Why? Well, number one, God's Word exposes our intentions. Exposes our intentions. There's nothing like having a really sick kid to send parents into desperation mode. That's a timeless truth, and we see that happening here. What do these parents want? What's Jeroboam and his wife want? Well, it seems like verse 3 they just want to know that their son will be okay. They, they want to know what will happen to him. And more likely, they want some sort of word from God through this prophet that he knows about, hoping that that word will be positive, hoping that his son, their son, will somehow be okay, as if that word from the prophet would mean that he'll be all right. They're hoping that the sickness won't take his life. So we have to ask some questions. Why doesn't Jeroboam just go? And why the, you know, 
Why the disguise? Why send the misses? What's going on here? Let me rewind the story just a little bit. What did Ahijah, the man of God, say to Jeroboam? Chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verse 37, he says, I will take you, this is Ahijah speaking to Jeroboam, I'll take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you will be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what's right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I'll be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and I'll give Israel to you. God through Ahijah said to Jeroboam, again, you're, you're going to be king. This is happening. This is going to be a reality. And if you'll just live the way I am calling you to live, if you'll live in obedience to my instruction, this will go really, really well for you. So he's to live a lot like King David did, and you know, not the sinful part of David, but the part that genuinely loves God and, and tried hard to live in a way that pleased God. David gave good effort to live in accordance to God's word and, and God's commandments. And where do we find Jeroboam? Well, he's starting a new religion. That's what chapter 13 was all about. Uh, doesn't exactly meet the standard. Those two things don't really match up. Uh, he's literally trying to help Israel worship a false god. It's crazy. So I, I'm assuming that Jeroboam, he, he knows that he's not in line with what God had asked him to do. So not only can he not go and risk you know, being recognized by Ahijah, but his wife can't either. That would almost certainly result, I think, in his mind, you know, in a negative word from this man of God. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to give you a good report for your son. You can't even obey for two seconds. Get out of here. You know, I think that's what he's concerned about. And they need a good report, right? Hence the, the gifts, the, the loaves and the cakes and honey. Just, you know, think of that as a dozen donuts. That's what he's doing here. And, and verse 4 Turns out that Ahijah has lost his sight, so maybe the disguise wasn't even necessary between the, you know, the blindness and the, the treats here. Seems like Mrs. Jeroboam's going to get a, a a good word. She'll secure a positive word from the man of God about her son. But already we have some weird stuff happening. We have a lot of questions of these first six verses. It's a strange view of manipulating and trying to control the outcome or the word of God. The king's trying to somehow trick and scheme this positive prophecy, a word from God that everything will be okay, but God, of course, was far ahead of Jeroboam. Verse 5, he says to Ahijah that this was happening, and he told him just what to say when the queen comes in. And upon her entry, the deception is totally exposed. So the belief that God's word can be outsmarted or manipulated, that God's commands can be ignored and you know his blessings still be available if you can get around the parts where you failed, as if somehow God can be outmaneuvered, that's, that's what's on display here. 
course, we know God's word isn't ours to manipulate. It isn't ours to change, you know, the parts that we don't prefer. God's word exposes us. It helps us to see our desires and our intentions and the way that we think even about him, even about his, his word. It's helpful here. God helps us to see that we don't view him or his instruction the way that we should. The Bible is not meant to be a life jacket when the boat starts to sink. It's meant to be a light for your whole life. It's meant to be a guide for every day, not just when you're desperately in need of of help. Jeroboam's only interested in the word of God because he's desperate, because he's worried about his son. His son is sick and, and in trouble. And so now he's hoping that God's word can rescue it. When times were pleasant, Jeroboam had no concern, no regard for God's word. In fact, he completely ignored it, doing whatever he wanted to do, living however he wanted to live, including completely leading all of God's people away from God himself. I read this great sentence. Jeroboam wants the help of the word in the emergencies of life, but not the rule of the word over the course of life. So here's King Jeroboam looking to God in crisis, but, you know, again, not for his daily life. He wants help for the emergency, but for the normal everyday stuff of life, no thanks. God, through his word, he exposes those intentions here. There's just no place to hide from the God who knows it all. There's no disguise that would be good enough to save you from his judgment There's no place you can go where he's not already there. God's word cannot be tweaked. It cannot be altered to our liking. We can't choose the parts that we like while ignoring the rest. We we don't get to ask God for salvation and then ignore his commands to turn from sin. We can't ask God for comfort when we're scared or stressed or anxious if we aren't willing to obey his instruction to follow him and to pursue holiness. God's word just doesn't let us get away with that. Again, there's no book like the Word of God. It exposes our intentions and also number two, look at this, it attacks our sin, verse 7 through 11. Go say to Jeroboam, this is Ahijah speaking to his wife, go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and I made you leader over my people Israel and I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you. And you've gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger. And you've cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I'm bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. 
Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Ahijah did have a pretty harsh message here for the wife of Jeroboam. God had, (laughs) to help him see it, wants to begin with how gracious he's been. He's been so gracious. He's been so good to Jeroboam. Notice where the word from God begins in verse 7. God says, I exalted you and I made you leader and I tore the kingdom away from David and I gave it to you. And notice what he says of Jeroboam, verse 8, Yet you, you've not been like David. You've done more evil. You've made other gods. You've provoked me to anger. You've cast me behind your back. So here we have Jeroboam, the recipient of such grace, such goodness from God. And yet he's just completely despised it, like he'd been given an amazing birthday present and just never bothered to open it. You know, that, that's kind of what's going on here. He just threw it away until he remembered or realized, oh, maybe that could actually help me. I need to go find that and, you know, dust it off a little bit. Just so we can understand the offense here, God uses this word provoke. You've provoked me. And he only uses that word in the Old Testament when it refers to himself, the way that his people provoke him because of their idolatry, because of the way they love to worship other gods besides him, because of the way that they break his commandment and his covenant with them to to have this exclusive relationship. It provokes him. It's only used that way in the Old Testament, except for one other time. And there, it's an illustration that I think is really helpful. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's a word that shows up between these two women. One's named Hannah, and the other is Penina. And a helpful illustration, both of these women are wives to the same husband, and Penina is able to have tons of children. She's got all the children. Hannah cannot get pregnant. And for whatever reason, uh, every year they have a sort of, I already said every year, but I'm going to say annual, (laughs) every year they go to this special worship service where they worship God and there's a big meal and the author of scripture there records for us that year after year after year at that moment, Penina loved to provoke Hannah that she could not have children. Year after year, she would make fun of her and she would annoy her and she would irritate her at that meal about this one thing. And without fail, that provoking would lead Hannah to weep and cry so hard that she couldn't eat. So upset. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who's been upset like that, but you can relate to that maybe. So upset she can't eat, so bugged that she lost her appetite. It's, I think, safe to say that Penina knew how to push Hannah's buttons. She knew how to just drive her crazy, provoked Hannah to the point of 
total exasperation, just lost it. Well, that's what idolatry does to the Lord. That's what worshiping another false God does to the one true God. It provokes him. It, it irritates him. It, it, it makes him so bugged because probably it causes his people to forget about him. Notice what's so connected there. To be God gets thrown behind the backs of his people. God's devastated and he's crushed when his people aren't faithful to him. And that's a good reminder of just how much God loves us, how much God loves you. God's provoked and agitated beyond measure when you forget about him, when you start to worship something else and toss him behind your back as if his grace means nothing to yours His love expressed to us in the gospel is discarded. Like we never really even care to open it or look at it or think about it. Right behind the back. That provokes God. It provokes him knowing that he sent his son to die for our sin. He loves us that much that he's willing to punish his son for us for you, and you are infatuated with idols instead. You're looking to something else. Now, we don't have the little molten metal images and little rocks like God's people do here, but we have so much other stuff. Money, coolness, status, hair sometimes that's weird but kind of we look to so many other things to make us feel comforted to make us feel like we're gonna be okay to make us feel safe to make us feel provided for to make us feel at peace with the crazy world around us god says he's provoked when we look to something else besides him, it drives him crazy. Again, for Israel, it's a little metal bull, a little stone cow. But for us, we long to worship ourselves. We want to be our own master. We get obsessed and our hearts get preoccupied with us. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. When you worship you and the cool and the status, you're worshiping something besides God and it provokes him. God's word is the most powerful book on the planet because it'll expose your intentions and it'll attack your sin. And number three, it reveals the heavy consequences of sin. Look at verse 12. Now you arise, go to your house. This is Ahijah again speaking to the queen. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave. 
because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he'll uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers, and he'll scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they've made their Asherim, those are idols, provoking the Lord to anger. He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah, and as she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died. All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. The wife of Jeroboam must now leave and head home with this devastating news, this devastating prophecy of what's to come, knowing that her son will die the second her key hits the lock. And that's what happens. For whatever reason, this son is spared a violent end, very different from the rest of Jeroboam's sons and what they will face. The death of the son happens immediately. What's next? Well, there's an overthrow of the dynasty. We'll see that unfold in chapter 15. And even the third sort of part of this prophecy is that all of Israel will be exiled from the land. That actually won't come to pass until 2 Kings chapter 17. So what is all this? Well, it's, it's not just Jeroboam's sin. It's not just his consequences. He led the whole nation to throw God behind their back. Three prophecies are given, and all three threats are about to be fulfilled. And I believe it's so helpful to see that that first part, that first prophecy of God's word comes true immediately. The son dies. That fulfillment is there to remind you that God's word is true. God's word is reliable. God's word also can't be stopped. God's word will come true. Why? Well, because of whose word it belongs to. Surely there's a lot for Jeroboam to grieve over. The loss of his son, it's so sad, but it's also a reminder that number two and three prophecy are just waiting, waiting to happen. His dynasty has been proclaimed. It's coming to a close. And you and all the males in your house are about to meet a a cruel end. His dynasty is over, and, and worse yet, the whole nation is doomed, doomed to be exiled from this promised land. So this truth, Jeroboam's sin and the heavy consequences, the author, he just won't let us forget it. In fact, from this point on, all the way to 2 Kings chapter 17, it's not every chapter, but it's pretty frequently, uh, he'll just keep reminding us. The author will remind us, the very first king, it was his sin that doomed the entire nation. 
He, he won't let Jeroboam escape this reality over and over. The sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, are happening here. The consequences of this man's sin are just so massive. They're so weighty. And even though you aren't a king and you won't have the opportunity to lead a whole nation into sin and God's judgment, still you need to see the seriousness of sin's consequences. God's word reminds you through illustration, through history, through New Testament letters, it reminds you of the seriousness and the weightiness of the consequences of sin. God's word reveals them to you. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. That includes you. You're a part of all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, including your sin, is death. That's a pretty heavy consequence. John 3.36, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him. That's pretty serious. Ephesians 2, you are dead in the trespasses and sins of your life. You're dead spiritually. That's pretty heavy, serious consequences. God's word wants you to see them. God's word's God's word wants you to know just how serious sin is. There is no other book like the word of God that exposes your intentions, that attacks your sin, it reveals these heavy consequences of your sin. And lastly, and super quick here, let's just look at one more. God's word emphasizes what's truly important in life. God's word emphasizes what's important in life. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned. Behold, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. The time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years and he slept with his fathers and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. This sort of summary ending, It'll be common as we make our way through the rest of the book of Kings. And I don't want to make too big of a deal of this. I don't, I don't think we're to just, you know, overly emphasize this. But it is interesting that all of the stuff that you and I would find really fascinating about King Jeroboam, all the details that we would like to know, all the things that would make for really interesting storytelling. God, through his word, just says, those aren't important. All the stuff of Jeroboam's life, well, God says, you can read about that someplace else. Why? Because it's not Jeroboam's accomplishments that matter. It's not what he built. It's not how he led. It's not the wars that he won or lost. It's not the human stuff that matters at all. It's how he interacted with God that matters. It's how 
God records that part of his life for us that God is saying to you, the reader, this is what is truly important. This is what matters. 22 years of life and work and accomplishments, and God says, doesn't matter. It's only faithfulness that matters. And in Jeroboam's case, it's his lack of faithfulness. It's his lack of faith, lack of obedience to the word of God. 22 years. God says, you can read about that someplace else. 22 years is a long time. You might get a few more than Jeroboam, but the point is the same. James says in chapter 4, verse 14, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The stuff that we think is so important, the stuff that consumes our brains and our hearts for the majority of the day, God, through his word, shows us right here, boy, that stuff just really doesn't matter. The only thing that matters, the only thing that's truly important is your relationship with God. It's your worship of God. It's your faith in God. That's what matters. Solomon, and we'll close with this, toward the end of his life, he did everything. We would all be so impressed with Solomon. He'd be the best hang ever. You'd have so many questions for him. He did it all. He tried it all. He accomplished everything cool and great and grand. And he wrote a book. And at the very end of his book and sort of the end of his life, he makes the exact same observation. Here's the whole point of life, he says. The conclusion, it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. He would tell you, here's the whole point of life. God's word wants you to know without a doubt. Here's what's important. That you love God truly and that you obey him. God's word is the most powerful book on the planet. There's just no book like it. No book can do what this can do. No book can expose your intentions and your heart. No book can show you how sinful you are. And no book also at the same time graciously shows you the consequences of this sin that you live in. Graciously and mercifully showing you this is what's truly important. Your relationship with God. Father, thank you for this morning. What a great chapter for us to look at, to be reminded of how powerful your word is, Lord, whether it's spoken through a prophet or, Lord, the word that you sent through your son and the word that we now have recorded in our Bible, Lord, that is your word, and it is powerful, and we are so thankful to have it. 
God, I pray for these young people, Lord, wherever they stand this morning with you, wherever their hearts are with you and the way they think about you and and the Bible that they have in their hand right now, Lord, I pray that you would use this short message this morning to impact their hearts for the rest of their life, Lord, that you would change the way they view the Bible, your scriptures, God, that they would treasure them, that they would love them, that they would desire to know your word more and more. God, I pray that you would draw these young teens to yourself, Lord, that you would save them through the preaching of your word, God, that they would see, as we've even talked about this morning, how serious their sin is, how it provokes you, Lord, but also how you mercifully offer salvation to those who repent and believe in the gospel. God, I pray for the rest of our morning, ask that it would honor you, ask that you would be praised and that your name would be exalted because of this church. We're so glad to be a part of it. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, God, keep us encouraged the rest of the day as we try to live for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.